Hi. Uh, good morning. This is uh, this is Uncle Eli. You're here listening to Uncle Eli's enormous craft problem. Uh, if you've come in search of a solution, all I have for you are problems, questions, uh, lots of information, lots of information. Um, so, how's it going? How are you doing? How are you feeling today? Um, I'm, you know, feeling kind of well rested. I've been trying to get as much sleep as possible um, whenever I'm not working, which is unfortunately not that much, but it's a solid six or seven hours every night. Um, I spent the morning yesterday cold working. Um, a really beautiful urn for an artist here in Oakland. Their partner's mother passed, and they needed a made an urn, a really beautiful urn, all sorts of colors on it, and then they needed a cold work, so I cold worked it. Uh, made the bottom beautiful, took an edge off the the lids, the lid fit in right. Spent a couple hours doing that, and then spent a couple hours um, dismantling an old furnace. Like a, must have been a 200 pound capacity freestanding pot, um, beehive style um, with a, just trying to remember what Mark Ekstrand used to build a kind like this, but it wasn't it wasn't him who built it. Um, and freestanding pot that had been turned off with the glass in it in the because it like the pot had split and rather than drain it, just turn it off, which is kind of what you do at the end of the pot um, because. There's some quick math that's being done there where you could drain it and get the glass out of there and then um, save yourself the labor on the other side. But the other side is so far away. The side where it's cold and you're going to have to smash it apart. So it's a long ways away. And, and oftentimes it's kind of in this place where it's like, that's going to get thrown away. I don't even know how I'm going to throw it away. Sometimes, if you're lucky, you can just, like, get a dumpster and just, like, forklift the whole thing in the dumpster and kaboom. Uh, <clears throat> one big boulder. It probably weighed somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 pounds, maybe. Um, 1,500 to 2,000 pounds of refractory and glass cooked into the exteriors. Really beautiful boulders um, and chunks of glass and when the glass eats away at um, the fiber fracks, which is a kind of like spun wool, silica, high silica content wool, looks like, um, is like insulation, looks like fucking cotton candy. It's like, it's like the cotton candy of glass. I assume it's like made in some hilarious similar fashion to cotton candy, except um, a little bit hotter. And um, 
so when the glass eats away at that, it creates these amazing kind of crystals and caverns and really like, you know, uh, some beautiful power crystals. Uh, so I was able to collect a couple small little specimens. Uh, I tried, I mean, as beautiful as they are, I really love them and I really want to save all the power crystals from every furnace I smash, but... I smash and dismantle and take enough of a part. I'm like, I can't. I'm not allowed to. I don't allow myself to hoard all those power crystals because they're all so beautiful. So I just fill the dumpster full of power crystals. Um, it's a beautiful dumpster, though. Beautiful, beautiful dumpster. So the refractories, the clays that cook apart, the colors, the iron gets in there. There's these really beautiful green colors. Uh, and then deep inside of the furnace is all this glass that's caked in there. And um, that stuff gets annealed for a long time because it takes a while for it to cool down. So it actually gets kind of a good annealing. So it is kind of like it doesn't, it's in large chunks, not uh, broken, but boulders. Boulders of Glass, which I think in the 50s and 60s was like a really popular thing. People really liked these boulders inside furnaces, and there was a bunch of, there's like a whole market coming out of Italy of these colored boulders. Uh, somebody gave me one, and I didn't realize that that's what it was from. I just thought like it was like a thing somebody got from a furnace, and then I realized, heard that like that was like a whole like market of like home decor was these colored boulders that come from the inside of a furnace and you break a furnace apart. Um, so they had figured out a way to sell those too. So got some good sleep last night after all that furnace smashing. Uh, did some little clay sculpting, like making these little figurines out of... Um, Sculpey, uh, like a polymer clay, oven fire clay. So I'm making these small figures that I'm going to kiln cast into glass. Um, these kind of like figurines, these things that look like something that might be important, but you can't tell what it is. Um, and I'm going to make it out of glass. <clears throat> so you'll wonder if it's important because it's made out of glass. Does um, painting my nails beautiful magenta color with a sparkly silver overlay. Um, like flaky silver. It's really, I love that flaky silver. It's one of my favorite colors like that over any pink or purple. So good. Um, so now I have to go to San Francisco, driving from San Francisco, about to get on the Bay Bridge here. Tides out. You can see all the beautiful clams out there. Lots of clams. Holy shit, I need to do some clamming. Um, going to San Francisco town and there I'm going to um, that tide is really low really need to get out there and chase those clams around um, I'm going to cut up some marini the strands of glass that are all wound together and pulled stretched out and then into like a uh, three-quarter, one-inch diameter rods uh, 
then they get sliced up. When, when the marini are that thick and they have many designs in them, you want to cut it with a saw. Because um, if you just chip it with a hammer or like a, a, a marini chopper, which is like essentially like two chisels that kind of meet in the middle um, on an arbor press, if you chop marini that way you can only get up to about a half inch chopping marini otherwise it starts to like the shapes are a little you get weird edges and you get weird edges anyways but sometimes when you're doing smaller stuff it's all right but sometimes when you're doing really big stuff that's very high-tech fancy stuff you need to cut it um into little wafers with the saw um and so there's an artist in San Francisco that asked me to come cut their marini for them. And, you know, I'm actually pretty excited to put on my headphones and cut marini for a couple hours. Uh, so cut it. The saw blade leaves it at, like, a 220 finish, and that is enough to then fire polish it in the oven. Um, take it out of the oven and put it into a hole to a hot hole, like a glory hole, and um, fire polish it. You usually want to, like, clean them a little first. Some people use an ultrasonic cleaner to get the glass debris off. You can also, like, polish them and things. You can do more aggressive polishing techniques, um, but it's this consensus seems to be if you have a, a decent saw blade and you saw them and then you don't go right to the flame with them and boil them you can make a clean finish uh, there are artists I know who do a the cane and marini are like part of their the, the, rather than rolling them up into a vessel like the actual the small marinis are just the finished object um, put it on a plate on a kiln washed kiln shelf plate stick in the glue hole fire polish at the top flip them all over fire polish the other side and then they're done and they look like perfectly polished wafers um, so that's a technique There's some craft we'll get into that though in Kane and Marie um, but here's the reason I've really come talk to you today this is one I've been thinking about a lot um all the time and trying to get to this place where I can really talk to you about it um, cancer cancer and hospitals um, a strange craft uh, but I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in April of 2010 uh, a couple months after my 30th birthday 30, 31st birthday um, and stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma it is very treatable um, has been very treatable since the 60s or so mid 60s when they um, kind of understood this lymphoma um, the swelling of the lymph nodes the active reaction of the lymph nodes um, in this particular way um, was, you know, found out by Mr. Hodgkins, I suspect. 
Um, and so I went through a very standard chemo treatment. Uh, ABVD, the four initials for the chemicals that they would inject into me. Uh, I, was given, I, was, I had a port installed in my chest. Um, and so, you know, maybe fortunately this lymphoma is, is very treatable, is, has a very standard issue care. It's been in the medical system long enough, like they've really dialed it in. It used to be that the chemo would make you more sick. Um, I was certainly nauseous, but not aggressively vomiting all the time. Um, so I think that's good news. It's pretty nauseous. Definitely did some vomiting. Um, didn't like as much food. So, um, that was a surprise. That was a surprise to me as a strong, unhealthy 31-year-old, um, you know, a fairly vegetarian diet. I would even kind of nervous about microwaves. I was, um, thought pretty careful. Um, but that's what I got. And it um, gave me a really amazing perspective on myself, on the healthcare system, on um, love, partnership, family, friendship. It opened my eyes to so many things. Um, and it was hard, um, hard to watch my family and friends. That was some of the hardest stuff was like the way that people would react. Uh, and in some ways, the weight that that would then be put on me, uh, the caretaking that I was then asked to do for others as they watched me, like with my parents, that was really hard. They really, um, it was hard for them, very hard for them. And in ways that they tried to hide it. Um, and, you know, but pretend like it was okay, but it wasn't okay. Um, so that was tricky. That was very tricky. Um, so I've gone through my own treatment. Um, I was married to someone that was diagnosed with cancer, an oral cancer, or squamous cell carcinoma under their tongue in 2016. And my children were one and three at the time. Um, so I was a caretaker for my partner and the kids for six months during their radiation and surgery. And then they kind of came out of that and got a little better. And then my dad was diagnosed with cancer in 2017, I guess the summer after that. Um, and he had, he went through treatment for two years and passed away in 2019. Uh, I spent a large portion of time with him just during that initial treatment. Um, with the initial diagnosis and the time in the hospital. Um, 
So me and hospitals and cancer, uh, I have unfortunately built a base of knowledge around this craft. And so I will, you know, if a friend or family member is diagnosed with cancer, I'll often hear from them um, as someone who's gone through this. You know, an instinct is to reach out to someone that might know something. Um, and so I've also been on the other side of, like, receiving these calls and talking to people and kind of, like, you know, helping them even just in the beginning stages, not even in like really dealing with it, but just like the shock, the initial shock, the first couple days of like, holy shit, I just got this really bad news and I'm trying to figure out how to even like process this bad news. So waiting to hear this from the doctor, this, and like, you know, could be this. Um, and so that's also been a kind of interesting glimpse into you know the the human dilemma uh, the psyche the mortal issues we all kind of face uh, my good friend Greg Owen uh, who was a glass artist in Seattle uh, reached out to me he was up visiting me the day before he was diagnosed uh, he was visiting my studio in Bellingham we were hanging out talking about video and audio things we were kind of getting into this like you know weird realm of like making videos and what we could do with that talking about you know ASMR podcasts um, sound familiar and um and then the next day he had a terrible headache and went to the hospital and you know within 24 hours had a diagnosis of uh, well it was brain cancer but I believe they knew it was a tumor they weren't totally sure but they were pretty sure it's kind of in these beginning stages as often like it's probably this but we can't give you the for sure without a full biopsy and workup um, and so um, you know, those initial conversations, um, oh, it's just so, it's so scary and hard and important for us all to be there for each other during those times and, um, to be able to share. I mean, it's, it's hard to even like articulate how I feel about that because it's like the trust and that someone would put in you to call you or to reach out to you when they're having this hard time is amazing but it's like it, there's none of it that's good it's not good to be on the other side and hearing it it's not good to be that person going through it it's not good that that I've had to go through that, um, but that we can all be here for each other, that I can be there for someone. Is there something, there's goodness in it somewhere. There's goodness in there. Uh, and I think for me, you know, sharing life experiences and knowledge is such an important part of being a human. It's the, 
it's the the growth of all of us as a community and a people um, is through the sharing of knowledge you know whether it's in a in a craft setting or a relationship setting or a healthcare body physicality setting um, the more we share with each other the more we all learn and know and can get ourselves further um, in our human experience um, when my father was diagnosed with cancer in 2017 um, one of the things he remarked on immediately was you know, coming from his Buddhist practice was I want to have the best cancer experience possible uh, and he viewed it as a you know as another human experience to have um, and to just kind of sit with that experience uh, and to be present for that process and to go through it and to feel the hurt and the pain and all the things that came along with it in, you know, in, uh, you know, an honest and real way. Uh, and I think, you know, he did as, um, you know, as one does in those situations. And I think that that kind of sentiment of just like it's a human experience and it's part of what we go through is like living and dying and um, the more we can keep our eyes open into these places, the more we can understand ourselves and um, have a more full and rich human experience um, I noticed in the beginning of 2010 that I had lymph nodes on my neck and in my armpit my right armpit and on my right neck the base of my neck over my shoulder I had a number of swollen lymph nodes um, and at first it didn't seem remarkable it seemed like maybe just like when I get sick like a lymph node would be swollen but they didn't when I get sick well my lymph nodes will get swollen and they'll be sore they'll hurt to the touch but these are weirdly not sore they were just uh, they're just hard lumps of lymph node um, very hard and but at that you know that young age 31 I'm not thinking didn't even cross my mind that it could be something like cancer um, just assume that um, my body was processing something um, and so Um, then 
I moved to New York City. Some crazy shit. I moved to New York City to be with my partner at the time. Um, the beginning of April. They basically moved on April 1st. And then I was showing at a gallery in New York, and I was like, you know, gallery, like, I actually got, I need to see a doctor. Like, I got this fucking weird lymph node thing. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, here, you know, here's a doctor. Like, here's the, like, doctor that all the artists go to. Like, they are a good deal for artists. Like, they're a weirdo. I was like, okay, that's cool. That's going to be good. So I go there, and then... The doctor's, like, pretty quickly is, like, this is really remarkable. Like, are you, have you seen anybody else about this? Like, this is, uh, you know, and I was, like, well, it's, like, this get weird. And he's, like, are your legs itchy? And I was, like, yeah, yeah, my legs are itchy. He's, like, do you have, uh, do you sweat a lot at night? or night sweats? I was, like, oh, yeah, man, I always sweat at night. I love sweating at night. <laughs> and he's, like, what, well, you should probably go to the hospital like if not today like t b tomorrow which is like also like a pretty crazy thing to hear from a doctor while you're in a doctor's office like um and so at this point he's kind of hinting at a lymphoma and I don't really know a shit about lymphomas at that point um and so I was like wow that's fucking that's crazy so you know, that was a Thursday, and then, um, I went into the next day, um, into, is it Mount, Mount Sinai? I went, so then, okay, so then, I didn't have... I had healthcare back in Washington, and um, so I was like, just moved to New York, and it was like, okay, I went in to the emergency room at Mount Sinai on a Friday morning, which if I had to do it over again, I would have waited till Monday, um, but um, instead, what I did was. go to go there on Friday and then they start processing and pretty soon it's like Friday night and then it's just like it's a whole different animal in the ER uh, it's not um, it's not time for them to deal with this kid that has cancer that can wait until Monday um, but then they finally got me in by Friday night, Saturday morning, which was also like a whole nother wonderful experience um, to be in an ER in New York City. Second time I'd spent a Friday night in an ER in New York City. The other time was with Joey when he had uh, spinal meningitis and a fever of 105 during the SARS epidemic. Uh, so we got to spend evening in St. Joe's um, in New York City which was also a very psychedelic experience um, so then I was finally like 
got the biopsy. I believe I got the biopsy on Tuesday, like after all those days. Then they got me into the biopsy place. Got the surgeon, got it all figured out, Got took one of my lymph nodes out of my neck so that they could tell me um, that it was, in fact, a Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, so, um, Here I am pulling up to the workplace. Um, so, probably gonna pause this, come back to this important story, uh, and tell you a thing or two. We'll get to the part of like things that I've learned about how to deal with cancer um, and hospital time. There's a lot there. I think that. I mean, that first weekend was so informative. I spent that first weekend in my in the hospital gown in Mount Sinai, and that's where I learned that it's really important to have street clothes, um, your regular clothes, because um, nothing makes you feel sicker. Well, there are things that make you feel sicker, but. Um, you could definitely feel, I definitely feel sicker wearing a gown in the hospital than I do wearing my street clothes. Uh, so, street clothes, sweatpants, and some slippers, some nice slippers that you can get in and out, out of easily. So you don't have to wear those crazy grippy socks or their weird shoe selection. So, um, that was an important thing I learned. Um, and, um, clothes, nice clothes. Um, yeah, just more to it. Just more to that. That's more where that came from. So, um, I'll see you in a minute, right? I'm going to go do some more. Okay. Bye. Okay. So here we are, back in the back in the car, back in the recording studio. Uh, we're on the Bay Bridge again, Bay Bridge again, again. I did some work last night. I was teaching a class about blowing glass, and um, it was a fun class. And then I was really pooped, so I went home, did snooze. And I woke up, cooked a steak for breakfast. You know, that was a really good steak. A steak and toast for breakfast. Steak with capers and toast. That was crazy. That was so good. Oh, wow, I can't believe I'm going to do that every day. Um, I was out of eggs, and I really wanted a heavy protein. Um, I was supposed to do some cold work this morning, but then the shop I was working at, somebody else called and said I need to do some glass blowing. So I thought it was just going to be some little glass blowing. 
But then it turned out to be some of the biggest, most enormous, heavy glass blowing I've done in a long time, and it was just a two-person team. Um, so that really kicked my ass. Kicked me right in the ass. And now I'm in the Bay Bridge, getting ready to travel to, getting ready to teach a class. I'm already traveling. I'm ready to travel. And I'm going to teach another class about glass blowing tonight. Um, optic mold stuff in. But um, you're still thinking about street clothes. And, um, you know, there's things like this street clothes, bringing your own clothes and not wearing the hospital gowns. You don't feel more ill and then another piece of advice I give is to decorate your IV pole like even if it's just some like colored string something that's like colorful colorful cloth a little bandana um, bright colors things that will bring a little happiness to you and somebody else in the hospital when you're doing your laps because oftentimes you're going to be needing to do a little walking. Um, it's good to do some laps. And um, you know, it uh, brings joy to you and the people around you on the floor. Everyone's fucking fucked. But there comes the person with the silly bandanas on their IV pole. So there's things like this. There's some things that like are physicalities of this that feel like, oh, here's a thing that we can do and like here's something I can cling to as like an answer, a solution, a, a path. And I think the, 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 another tricky part is that, is that it, the, everyone has their own experience, you know, and it's not there's no prescribed way to do this. There's no good way to do this. Um, it's all hard and confusing and painful. And I think especially is like each person is going to have their own unique experience in a way that that just feels so unique to them and so unusual. Um, you know, in a way that is not terrible, like puts you that kind of at the center of the universe. It closes off all the other things. And it focuses your energy on yourself. I mean, that's a good part of it. It's not a good thing, but it's, you know, bringing in that focus onto yourself and, like, allowing yourself to be the only thought for yourself, a very selfish concern. Um, because it's, you know, it's a... It's a health thing. It's your, you know, your existence, your um, physicalness, and you know, I, I think this loops back to my dad's quote of wanting to have the best cancer experience possible, and it's you know in its uniqueness and in its onlyness, like, that is the best part. That is the bestness of it, is this kind of, like, 
this unique space of it and that it is the experience that it is and it's the only experience that it is and it's the only experience that you're having at that point um, and I think that there's something really powerful in that and I and I think like you know as I reflect back on my own experience and my partners my fathers and like what has happened and how those have kind of affected me you know I, I I'm just amazed at um, the uniqueness of each of these and how intense they are for the sick person, the people right around them, the people in the periphery, you know, and how this can affect us in this kind of ripple effect and that each one of these is like a very powerful and unique experience and allowing it to be that full, unique, powerful, solo experience. Um, because it will be at some point, you know, it, uh, oftentimes we're grappling at the beginning stages of like trying to compare it, you know, was like uh, for me, I was doing a lot of research and thinking about it a lot. And there was a moment then when I just realized I didn't want to learn anymore about lymphoma and Hodgkin's lymphoma and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Like I didn't, I just wanted to go to the doctors and have them tell me what to do and then I could do it and then. <laughs> tell me which pills to take I fucking take them I didn't care I didn't want to be involved in it anymore it was tiring and it was exhausting and, and terrible and the less I had to think about it the better was where I kind of concluded um, and yeah that was my own experience you know that's and, and there were people I know who have the same diagnosis and they were able to handle it way different you know they worked through it and they kept track of it and they did it differently and I think you know each person has their own each person that's diagnosed with cancer has their own unique cancer experience and that's like what you know part of what's so remarkable about it even in the like largeness of the cancer treatment industry and how it can at times feel like you're just a number you're going into a room with a bunch of chairs that people come sit in all day and get the same sort of treatment but you know you are having your own experience in that space um, and finding that for yourself and allowing yourself to be there um, and you know, finding the, the family and friends around you, but also, like, shutting off what you need to and not having to do that. Um, and I was talking about how hard it was for um, family and friends and, like, watching them and how that, you know, would put a certain amount of weight on me to kind of, like, you know, I think there was times, like, I mean, this was, I was just... 31 and was still young, didn't have kids and was like, you know, still like partying and hosting and like doing activities with friends, you know, those things that we used to do when we had friends. Uh, and 
you know, there's times I felt like there were people that would come to me and, you know, they would maybe come under the guise of, like, supporting, and then they would just come and fall apart, and I would be supporting them. Um, and I think, you know, there were parts of that that were wonderful and gave me an escape, um, you know, to kind of... Um, be there for them was a way to escape my own illness. Um, and then being on the other side, like being a partner and a son to someone going through this was also a way to, you know, to hide from my own pain and grief to not you know, think about um, the reality and the hard, you know, the hard, painful reality of death and mortality, but instead to just be focused in, in the minutiae of the daily task, of the feeding, of the, you know, getting out and going for a walk, the movement, the just like, the basic, the day-to-day. Um, and I think that's something um, that's also really unique in the craft of it to stay focused here to not get too lost in the weeds um, you know food and exercise I think are you know I mean those are obvious ones but I think that it's also it's easy to forget those um, and I think while I was sick you know I kind of pledged to myself that I wasn't going to lose you know too much more weight um, and that I was going to stay you know not get you know kind of emaciated and so I think I used in some ways food as part of my medicine treating myself and then as a caretaker for a partner or you know helping my partner helping my dad like using food and exercise as a way to distract um, and a way to just like mark those moments in time in the day um, keeping my own energy up and I think in some ways it helped like reestablish patterns for myself um, and you know helped remind me of like my mortality and my frailness was just like you know keeping my energy and my sanity in those moments, especially as a father during those moments is and was like really important to you know, you keeping that keeping the body alive in that day to day and um I think I was able to move through those spaces in 
same ways. Um, holy shit. It's a lot to think about, isn't it? Um, so after going through my own chemotherapy, six months, a little over, I think it turned out to be like eight months or something, finally. Um, to going through that, then it was, you know, it was really almost two years of like trying to get myself back to feeling normal again. Uh, all my fingernails and toenails had all gotten all fucked up. All my hair, like, pretty much disappeared. Um, and my fingernails and my toenails all kind of turned to yellow and got all fucked up. So just growing out my fingernails and toenails back to their state, like, watching all of that stuff grow out like, way from back in the root... That took almost two years, and, you know, just getting my weight, my appetite, and my feeling, my body, like, kind of re-equalized, you know, took that time. Um, and I would go through every six months or so, have a CAT scan or PET scan, the different kind of, like, MRI scans they do, and they were doing, but then they stopped doing, like, mid after my treatment, they're like, oh, wait, those things are, like, too toxic for you. We're not going to give you those things. And then it was just, like, physical checkups, um, keeping an eye on my lymph nodes, my lymphatic system. Um, the physicality of it. And... So here's a, here was something that I noticed was, you know, after getting done with the treatment, I think there was a desire, you know, there's like often in the nurse's office where you get the treatment, there's like a bell you can ring at the end of your chemotherapy, or, you know, at the end of your treatment. The last chemo, you can ring the bell. And... There's this kind of desire to, like, you know, amongst friends and family also to, like, applaud this end and, like, you're done and, like, you're all healed kind of feeling. And I think what I w noticed and was, like, how n I didn't feel done and I didn't feel better and I didn't feel okay. Um, I felt still, like... Overwhelmed, I still felt sick and nauseous. I felt scared, overwhelmed by this sickness and by all this treatment. Um, I didn't feel like I was out of the woods. You know, you get done with that chemo, they still need to test you, you know, see if it's in your bone marrow. And then they need to monitor you for next, another six months, like closely in this way. And then for another year, this. And then for another five years in this way. And I, I think, you know, now, some 12, 13 years away from that, you know, I do feel separate and I do feel healed and better 
and safe. But it wasn't right away. And this is something I've, I've heard remarked about from other cancer patients is that it isn't that kind of like strong moment that I think we all kind of want it to be that like you get done and yeah, you like ring the bell and ta-da, you're all done. And like, you know, you're going to go rest up, but you're feeling better that the you know the trauma of that moment is like is lingers and lasts for a while and doesn't just disappear and is very present and is for me it was very lonely making there wasn't anybody else there there wasn't any other people in there with me it was just me that went through that and it was just me that was going to face it again and if it came back it was going to be just me and if you know if I died from it it was going to be just me that died um, and I think that that, like, feeling, you know, it's kind of hard to shake in that way that you go into these kind of intense treatments and it's like, that's, you know, that's what you're doing is you're going through this intense treatment and you're not just getting out and maybe like it's in remission but it's it's not a it's not a healing process um and you know the chemo itself and and radiations and surgeries are not you know they leave you the after effects are intense um they leave you fucked up and they don't leave you feeling like you're better they leave you scared and traumatized and I think that's a you know a hard part to face both as a patient but also as a family and friend nearby that there's really also nothing you can do to hold that person um, it's you know you could support them and you can be present for them but like their pain is inside and it can't be removed and it's you know, it's caused in external ways by the sickness and by the treatment, by the, you know, the hospital industry. And, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that can treat these things and fix these things, but it's it's also the place that, like, that hurts. And, and it's hard because, you know... The hospitals are fucking magic places and there's like there's still something about me that like you know <sighs> hospitals are intense and scary and but there's also something wonderfully still comforting to me about them and like something safe in them and it's something I, you know, I really puzzle with and try to understand is like, you know, because I've heard people talk, talk about they really don't like hospitals, makes them feel gross, they don't like it, it's they can't deal with it. And I have a very conflicted relationship. It's like I can, you know, they're gross and they're hard, but it's the place where the safety is. It's the place where you can get, it's the only place you're going to get the treatment for that. It's the place that it's going gonna, it's gonna to give you, you know, the thing that you need to fix you, supposedly. And 
you know, where is that? What is that like? Am I like trauma bonded to hospitals? Um, you know, like that I kind of like gave in in this way and was like, all right, fine. Like, you're right. Um, I don't know. Like this is it's a it's a tricky one as I think about it because I know like you know having spent so much time myself in the hospital under my own treatment and like having to go in for chemos and having to go in for complications and white blood cell count and like fucking appendicitis like while I had the chemotherapy and and then being married to someone that had cancer and like spending years in and out of the hospital with them and then right at the end of that my dad gets sick and like I spend all this time with him and my dad you know it's one of those ones who didn't like hospitals and had never had never hadn't been in a hospital since he was 14 years old you know at 72 70 years old had not been in a hospital since he was a kid and to him like hospitals are like where old people go and it wasn't a safe space and it was a really scary thing and it's like if you're in a hospital you're, you're pretty soon you're going to die and you know to me it's like on this other side of like a hospital is where you go when you're sick and you're going to have a hard time and then it's going to make you better and and so I think, I, you know, there, I mean, there is the crux of the relationship that I have with it and, like, what it kind of has given me. Um, because the complications I've had have been, you know, so much bigger than anything I can deal with. Um... And that to kind of relax and just like give into it was like the only option. Um, so is that is that confusing enough? Sure seems like it to me. Confusing cancer. Um, the craft of cancer. Yeah, lots of crafts, <laughs> lots of crafts. Drawing and painting, little tinky tinker crafts, my hands, lots of string, tying things, knots, eating mac and cheese, hot dogs, watching football. Got really into football when I was cancer, and. Made some great art shows. Made a lot of phone calls. Did not stop smoking cigarettes. I have since, many years, 
many years I haven't smoked, but got good at slingshots. Shot a lot of slingshots. Spent a lot of time on my boat. Sat in the water in the canoe. Didn't catch anything. Crab traps. So what is it? What is it that gets us there, carries us through? Perhaps, perhaps it is just the embrace of the experience. You know, I think it's a really strange part of learning so much from my dad about dying and cancer watching him go through cancer treatment and like the way that he persevered and the way that he was so strong but then also looking back at when I had cancer and how it was just the hardest thing for him to face and for the way that he was able to have this amazing experience for himself and face his own experience he still really struggled with my experience. You know, I moved to this tiny island, not not far from his house, and he never visited me there. You know, and I had a lot of family and a lot of friends that would come, but he just, he had a hard time being around me. And, you know, I think this was like, this is the difficulty of it that you know there are these many layers where we can face it in a certain way and there's ways that we can't um, you know there's times when we can face our own demise more you know easier than we can face someone we love you know and I think that I for myself was able to understand that and like see my own death and my own mortality in a way that was easier for me than facing my father's or my wife's mortality and what those meant to me and how those affected me were harder also and I think that that's like it's such a way a strange kind of moment of time of like you know watching my dad go through it himself and learning so much from him and then remembering like how scared he was but unable to express that to me and how that fear kind of like struck him and you know silenced him in a way that I think he never he wasn't able to reconcile completely 
and he would, you know, he'd kind of allude to it, but it was hard, you know. And then when it was own own death, he could speak of it so much more poetically and with strength and kind of face it in this stoic manner. And I think that that's something that is like a big lesson that there there isn't a right way and a good way and there's a lots of confusion and it's hard and if we can just experience it as it is and be present with our own feelings and know these feelings whether they're good or bad or we're in denial or we're facing it or we're, we're totally scared or we're angry is just like being present with those feelings and I think that's that's probably here at the root of my thoughts around like the craft of of dealing with cancer you know is this like the cruel dichotomy of it you know and and knowing that that's there you know and knowing knowing the good strength and the fear are in all of us you know it's the fight and the flight are here in us and we can hold both of these um, and at the same time and that's okay and that's part of part of what we're doing here as humans <laughs> You feel me? <laughs> feel me? Feel me on that one? All right. Well, thanks for going on that journey for me. It was good to think about that with you. Um, I'm going to get to this traffic. I'm going to get to this work. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing yourself with me. Love you lots. Talk to you soon. This is the end of the message.